0: Well, this morning we are going to be in Exodus chapter 8 and 9. In Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, and we have another long passage this Sunday. It will get even longer next week, but if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are going to take Exodus chapter 8, verse 20, down to chapter 9, verse 12. Listen, listen to God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I'll send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth." Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. For the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln. And stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. In the period between 1500 and 1700, in addition to more than 330 wars and skirmishes and outbreaks and armed conflicts, plague was a common event in Reformation and post-Reformation Europe. It was a frightening time because of the virulence and its contagiousness and its deadly and the deadliness of the plague. The mortality rate on average was about twenty five percent. Our modern society we, we chafe under the inconvenience of masking and intermittent shutdowns of public marketplaces. We don't like the stoppage of social life, yet if you lived 75 years in this time, and that would be a very big if that you lived for 75 years, you would probably spend 15 to 25 of your years of your life under plague-related civil ordinances and restrictions. Yet it was in this era that many turned to the church. Because the burden of care for plague victims fell to reformers like Calvin, Zwingli, Luther. And during this period, they, along with with many post-Reformation Christian pastors, they wrote treatises and letters about how the people of God should behave in this time, in this time of plague. And I've been recently reading through some of their writings and some of the things that they give all sorts of great pastoral counsel, but there's a theme that runs through almost all their writings, and it is this, that the people should know God. That the people should know God. I mean, oftentimes in life, when our backs are against the wall, When we are in the most dire of circumstances, when we feel like we can't go on, when work is difficult, the children are crazy, relationships aren't going the way we thought they would, what do we want? We want, what should we do? We want something to do. And so we come in on a Sunday, and we want a sermon with practical application. And don't get me wrong, good preaching comes with practical application. But there is also something you need every single week, even more than you need three things to help with your stress. Four ways to curb your anxiety. Five ways to better your marriage or to make sure your kids, you know, go on the straight and narrow. All of those things are helpful. But here's what you and I need, whether you are in a time of peace or you are in a time of plague. And that is, you need to know the Lord. We need to know the godness of God. We need to see who he is here and who he is and and understand who he is and behold our God. We need to know the Lord. And that's what we see in Exodus in these passages concerning the plagues. These plagues are designed that we might know God. So as we look this morning to the fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues, we'll see that God continues to reveal more about who he is and why we should listen to him. Now, if you haven't been with us for some time, we are in the middle of the ten plagues. And we've seen that these plagues are not so much about liberation, but about knowing God. That is really the big idea, is that God is going to reveal who he is, that they might know his name, that Egypt might know, that Pharaoh might know, that all the world might know, that Israel might know. And that comes in various places throughout the text. Just in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, if you turn back there, it says that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. In the very first plague of the Nile, Verse 17, God says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In the second plague that we saw last week, Moses reiterates in chapter 8, verse 10, so that you may know that, there is, that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Even in our passage this morning, that same phrase occurs in verse 22 of chapter 8, that you may know that I am the Lord. That is being made abundantly clear through these plagues that God is God and that there is no other. Yahweh is the one God, supreme in judgment, supreme in power. These themes continue in these next cycle of plagues, in plagues four, five, and six. But there is even more being revealed now. In particular, we see two things. God makes distinctions, and secondly, God gives protection. So what I want to do this morning is kind of first walk through this text for us to understand it, and then make some comments along the way as we're walking through it, and then we'll close with these two characteristics of God, that he is a God of distinctions, and secondly, that he is a God of protection. So first, let's walk through the passage. Chapter 8, verse 20 begins a new cycle of plagues in Egypt. As mentioned before, the ten plagues kind of come in cycles of three. Three, 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 and then the tenth plague, the last plague, is different. So there are markers throughout these ten plagues that tell us that they come in cycles of three, uh, that they're all kind of set off and organized in this way. You'll notice that the first, fourth, and seventh plague all involve Moses meeting Pharaoh In the morning. The second, fifth, and eighth all talk about Moses going in to see Pharaoh in the courts. And the third, sixth, and ninth plagues all come with no warning at all. So they come in these cycles of three, and we are in the second cycle of plagues, and we see that they're growing progressively worse and more dangerous. First, there is this plague of flies. We don't know exactly what kind of flying insects they are. Maybe they're. All different kinds of insects. Some people think that they're scarabs or whatever it might be, but these are flying insects. They are swarms, and you have to remember that during this time there were no window screens in Egypt. Those were not invented yet. They were just—they had to have just holes in their homes as windows because it was Egypt. It was hot. You needed cross breeze. You needed ventilation. There's no way to prevent these flies from coming into their homes. Now, flies are these ugly, repulsive creatures generally. I like to think so. You might love them. But even one fly buzzing around in the room is kind of annoying. Ten flies are certainly a nuisance, and 50 flies are a real annoyance. I found this out 15 years ago while I was in seminary. Uh, During this time, I lived by myself, but often would have guests come over to my home. And one day, a friend visited and left, and I began seeing flies in my house. I didn't think anything of it. I kind of sprayed it down and vacuumed them all up, and I was like, done. The next day, early in the morning, I took off, went off to school, went off to seminary, came back in the evening and discovered my house was full of flies. They were on my countertop. In my dining room, there were like black curtains around my windows. I tried to spray the flies, but there were simply too many of them. And that night, I crawled into the back seat of my car and slept there because I couldn't sleep inside the house. And I just thought to myself, there must have been a rodent that died in my house somewhere. And in the next couple of days, I searched for the source, and eventually I found it. My friend that had visited had used my toilet and clogged it, and the leftovers in the toilet became a breeding ground for maggots and larvae. That was just a few hundred flies. This, in Egypt, is a whole plague of them, an inundation of them, so severe that flies cover every inch of the ground. It says there in the text, every corner of the building. You can't put your foot down without stepping on them. That's what it's saying. It says in verse 24, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. You can't eat without ingesting flies. You can't sleep without flies covering your body. You can barely see because of the swarms. Now, it's at this point that Pharaoh begins to weaken we're not told how many days go by, how many complaints and expressions of panic he receives, but we do know this. We are told that he is so driven to distraction, so bugged by these bugs, that in verse 25, he calls Moses and Aaron to the palace. And he offers a partial concession to God's demands. He says, You can go sacrifice, you can go serve your God, you can go worship your God, but you stay in the land. And it was kind of like Pharaoh was saying, Worship God, just don't take it too far. Worship God, just an hour on Sunday, though. Worship God, but not on Super Bowl Sunday. But Moses would have none of it. He would not think of settling for a mere in-country religious holiday. This was neither the directive of God nor the promise of God. So Moses says, I can't do it. This is going to be really offensive because you know what we're going to do? We're going to be sacrificing bowls. And you know what you are like? As Egyptians, you worship bulls. And so for us to do this, it would be like holding a pig roast at a synagogue or cooking burgers in front of a Hindu temple. So finally, Pharaoh acquiesces. He says, go just not very far away. And this restriction did not directly contradict God's command, so Moses accepts Pharaoh's offer. The flies are gone, just like that, right? Not one remained, it says. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they just dissolved the dust. They kind of did some weird, like, infinity war, you know, just dis- disappeared. I don't know. But not one remains. But Pharaoh is not humbled. He makes his heart heavy. The language has the idea is that he is making his own heart impenetrable. He will not acknowledge God. So these frogs and gnats and flies have come upon the land. But now in chapter 9, things start to get a little more serious. Before, the plagues were kind of a nuisance, kind of offensive. But now, death is coming. It begins with the death of the livestock. It kills the livestock. Verse 3 declares, The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. That word for severe there is literally very heavy in the Hebrew. And it is the same word used to describe Pharaoh's heart. Surely I think there is a play on words here. As heavy as your heart is, Pharaoh, so heavy will these plagues descend upon you. The plague falls and the livestock is decimated. Decimated. You can imagine men and women peeking out their windows and seeing... All the livestock dropped like flies. Economy, food, milk, clothing, transportation, all of it destroyed. Now, some have wondered about that phrase in verse 6 where it says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. And careful students of scriptures might ask, well, how did all the livestock die? I mean, when animals appear actually in the very next plague. Livestock is again mentioned in the plague of hail. Is there some type of discrepancy or contradiction in the Bible? Well, one possible explanation is that the plague only affected animals out in the field. If you look carefully, it says in verse 3, the plague is limited to livestock in the field. So could it be, perhaps, that some Egyptians heeded Moses' warning and brought their livestock out of the field and into the barns? It's certainly the case that through these plagues, some Egyptians will decide to follow Yahweh. When Egypt, when, when Israel comes out of Egypt, in chapter 12, verse 38, it says a mixed multitude went up with them. So perhaps this was a sign that some of the Egyptians are beginning to soften their hearts to Yahweh and brought their livestock in. Another possible explanation is that the word all there. The word in Hebrew can mean all sorts of or all over the place, So maybe it just is saying that the Egyptian livestock died all over the place. I think both of those explanations are reasonable. More importantly, however, we see that even after this plague, Pharaoh continues to what? Harden his heart. Uh, Last week, uh, a dear sister in the congregation made a little gif and sent it to me uh, and likened Pharaoh to metapod. And if you don't know what Metapod is, I didn't. Um, It's a Pokemon character that possesses only one defense. The more you strike it, the harder it gets. And that's Pharaoh. Plague, 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 plague. And he just hardens and hardens and hardens his heart. No humility before God. Which brings us to the boils in chapter 9, verse 8. This is the first plague that has a direct physical impact on the Egyptians themselves. Moses takes a handful of furnace ash and throws it into the air. And the ash returns earthward, covering man and beast with a fine dust. And in this seemingly deadly transubstantiation. This dust leads to an outbreak upon the skin. At first glance, the command for Moses to take furnace, furnace ash seems kind of, this kiln, the soot from the kiln seems kind of strange. But very likely it's because the type of furnace spoken of here was a kiln for burning bricks. So this is poetic justice. The furnace, a symbol of the oppression of the Hebrews, the sweat and tears that, were, that they were shedding to make bricks for the Egyptians, the very soot that enslaved the people of God was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. It's unclear exactly what kind of boils appear on man and beast. We know that it is not simply a benign skin growth. Deuteronomy twenty twenty seven describes this plague as one with tumors, And scabs and itch. So could it be leprosy? Could it be smallpox? Some liken it to anthrax. Perhaps it's black soot because they were soot colored lesions on the body. And notice that while Moses stands before Pharaoh, these magicians cannot stand before Moses. Their defeat is so complete, their humiliation so absolute that we don't even hear of them ever again until the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3.8. And yet the plague of boils ends the same way all the other plagues end, with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Even with his gods humbled and, and 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 magicians humiliated, Pharaoh's heart does not yield. And for the very first time, we see there at the end of this plague, the Bible explicitly says that God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens it. Many of us have a question about this: Who hardens the heart? You know, is it Pharaoh that hardens the heart? Is it God who hardens the heart? Is it both? Lord willing, in two weeks, I can address some of those questions. But for now, let me just say this. God is not overriding the will of Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh's not in his palace saying, God, you are God. And you know what? I want your people to serve you. I want your people to worship you. You are God and there is no other. That's not what's going on in Pharaoh's heart. It's not as if God is saying, hmm, Hard heart for you, Pharaoh. No, that's not what's happening. Pharaoh wants to oppress. Pharaoh's heart is hard. He will not acknowledge Yahweh's supremacy at all. And God's judgment makes it certain. I think this is a warning. I think this is a warning. Because if any of you think you can ignore God and live the way you want to live now, and one day, oh, one day in the future, I'll become a Christian Hey, I'm young. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'll keep being an agnostic, meaning I keep ignoring God. And one day, maybe one day later, and you know what? This tells us when that one day comes, you may be unable to turn to the Lord, unable to come to Christ. J.C. Ryle, a pastor in the 1800s, he put it this way, and he was writing to young men, but I think it's applicable to everyone. He says, Do not be deceived. Don't think you can at will serve lust and pleasure in your beginning and then go and serve God with ease at your latter end. It is a mockery to deal with God and your souls in such a fashion. Repentance and faith are the gifts of God, and there are gifts that he often withholds when they have been long offered in vain. Every day you are either getting nearer to God or further off. Every year that you continue unrepentant, the wall of division between you and heaven becomes higher and thicker and the gulf to be crossed deeper and broader. Oh, dread the hardening effect of constant lingering in sin. Now is the accepted time. If you do not seek the Lord when young, the strength of habit is such that you will probably never seek him at all. May they, may that not be true of any of you this morning. Well, having overviewed these plagues, what do we learn about God in this new cycle of plagues? Here's the first thing we observe, and you can jot this one down, is that God makes distinctions. God makes distinctions. This is something new in the course of these plagues. Previously, the plagues affected all of Egypt, It affected the servants and slaves of Egypt, including, I believe, the Israelites. But beginning in the fourth plague, and I think through the rest of the following plagues, God begins to make a distinction. Look again at the plague of flies. In verse 22, God sets the land of Goshen apart. This is Goshen was the place where the Israelites dwelt. It was like an invisible wall was there where no no swarms of flies appeared in Goshen. Then again, in the death of the livestock, same thing. This characteristic is even highlighted several times in verses 4 and 6 and 7. It says, but the Lord will make a distinction between your livestock and Israel's livestock. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of those that belonged to Israel. Now, this, this certainly demonstrates that God is supreme and that these plagues are supernatural. But it tells us that God is a God of distinctions. And this is one of the most unpopular parts of the Bible today. Not this particular passage, not these verses in particular, but this idea that God will not, in the end, treat everyone the same. He will treat everyone fairly, but he will not treat everyone the same. It's all over the Bible. There are sheep and there are goats. There's some that will be at his right hand and some that will be at his left hand. There's going to be feasting for some, and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth for others. And Jesus himself said, do you think that I've come to bring peace? And we might think, yes, of course, you're Prince of Peace, you know. But what does he say? He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, in Luke 12, he says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father and and against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So it is not, yes, there is a sense in which Jesus has come to bring unity, but it's not just all singing hands and kumbaya. God makes distinctions. You know, today we hear a lot about being inclusive, but think about what this means. Without exclusion, you have nothing to include people in. If you say, come join us, and your us has no boundaries, the invitation would be meaningless. No, when anyone talks about inclusion, they all are implicitly or explicitly thinking about who they are excluding. Come, join my basketball team. That means some of you are not on my basketball team. Come, join our startup. But not everyone is an engineer. Come join the church. Well, not everyone is in the church. Even the most inclusive people tend to be quite exclusive to those that they deem insufficiently inclusive. You might wonder, how can God do this? How can God possibly choose Israel and not choose others? Well, let me assure you, it's not because they were more worthy or more righteous. We just have to think about Abraham, and we read at the end of Joshua that Abraham worshipped other gods. Abraham was not more righteous. He was not better. He was not more obedient somehow that God would choose them. God chose him because he had mercy on them. God loved him because he loved him. Deuteronomy 7, 6 talks about God saying, I chose you to be a people for treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord says love on you and chose you. In other words, God doesn't choose them because of anything inherent in them. He says, I love you because I love you. This love is not earned, and this love is not deserved. But The point here that God is trying to make is that there is coming a day when he will say, enter into the joy of your master, and to some he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. God makes a distinction between the elect and the reprobate, believing and unbelieving, righteous and wicked. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. While it's true that God makes distinctions, what is also true is that God gives protection. That's our second point. This is the second characteristic that cannot be missed. In the middle of these series of plagues, God gives protection. God has set His particular love on Israel, on His people. And yes, this love is not earned, and yes, this love is not deserved. And therefore, this particular love cannot be lost. This is the kind of love that we need, that you and I all yearn for. God says, you are my covenant people. You are precious to me. You are mine, and I will carry you through. I will do it. You know, I care about all the children in this church and Some of you are here this morning. I'm glad to see all the children. And I say hi to you because I care about you. But let me tell you this. When it comes time to pick up at Sunday school, I pick up Jojo and Haddon and Taylor and Hannah because they're mine. And God protects those who are his, whatever may come. Listen to what Psalm 91 says. Psalm 91 I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. God's protection doesn't mean that he will erect erect invisible barriers to protect his followers from, from devastation while crushing other people. Typically, we understand that more times than not, it does come near. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote in his own day concerning the plague that Christians should not presume God will give Christians some magical blessing and immunity from the plague. He writes, some, this is Martin Luther, are much too rash and reckless, tempting God and disregarding everything which might counteract death and the plague. They disdain the use of medicines. They do not avoid places and persons infected by the plague, but lightheartedly they make sport of it and wish to prove how independent they are. This is not trusting God, but tempting him. God has created medicines and provided us with intelligence to guard and take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. And I think this is wise counsel because the Bible is littered all over the place, whether it's Jacob or David or Paul or even Jesus himself, of people who flee in times of trouble. God will not exempt us from harm simply because we have some mantra like, Faith over fear. And yet, and yet, it is undeniable that we are safe in the shelter of God. Psalm 91 is not a lie. It will not touch you, it will not come near you. We can trust implicitly in the love of God, the power of God to give you everything you need to do His will and glorify your, His name, whether you live or whether you die. That's the promise. Church, you have true safety. God will hold you fast through every trial in the midst of every storm. He will hold you secure. No wrath will ever befall you. Nothing will separate you from His love love, even if you should drop dead in the cause of Christ. It does not defeat you. If you have fled to Christ, if you're hiding away in the land of Goshen, as it were, where the people of God dwell, you are safe for eternity. And that's why in the same exact treatise, Martin Luther would write, we should stay where we are, make our preparations and take courage. We cannot desert one another or flee from one another. He says, shame on you for despising such great comfort and letting yourself become more frightened by some small boil or some uncertain danger than emboldened by such sure and faithful promises of God. So we are vulnerable people. The world is fraught with risks and dangers, but Christian, you are not alone. You are not abandoned. You will not be destroyed. He will sustain you in hardship and bring you through to ultimate safety because no final evil will befall you or can befall you. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my prayer is that you have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. I hope that you see that the safest place you can be is to run towards this almighty, powerful, judgment-bringing, distinction-making God. That's the safest place to be. Because in his great love and mercy, he has provided a hiding place in Christ, a refuge in Christ. You were made in God's image to know him. But we sin and cut ourselves off from him, and we've lived like Pharaoh, following false gods, following, making ourselves our own gods, and we, are, we refuse to listen. But in God's great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, taking on himself the punishment that we deserved the sins of all those who would trust in him. And he calls you now to find shelter in Christ, to humble and not harden, to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. So this morning in our time, in our particular time of plague, may it be the means not of the hardening of your hearts, but of your salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again, which speaks to us And may we have, may we not stop up our ears and make our hearts diamond hard and refuse you still. Oh, Lord, give us mercy, send mercy and grace upon us that we might turn to you in times of difficulty. Knowing that you, though a God of distinction, are a God of protection. So may we draw near each day under your wings, under the pinions, under your shield, knowing that you care for your own people and that you withhold no good thing from them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.